So once again, uh, you're used to benedictions at the end of a gathering, at the end of a service, at the end of a document. Paul actually gives you a lengthy benediction at the beginning of this letter. Uh, his greetings are verses 1 and 2. There is theological truth there, which we will unpack. There's not a desultory word in Scripture, and we're not going to leave a word out as we unpack the truth in it. His benediction, which is quite lengthy for the letters of Paul, begins in verse 3 and runs through verse 14. And we will begin that benediction today. We won't finish it today, but we will begin it today. Paul opens his letter in a manner that's quite customary for the time period. It's customary to his other letters. It's a good example of a very formal Greco-Roman letter of the time period by a very accomplished and well-educated man. His uh, opening salutation in the first two verses is really pretty brief compared to the opening salutations of some of Paul's other letters. It seems as if Paul's chomping at the bit, if I can use that expression. He wants to hit the ground running. He wants to hit the ground running with the deep theological truth, some of the deepest that he proclaims in his letters. He wants to confront you with that, with some of the deepest realities of life that we can be confronted with. He wants to get to it right away. So he gives us more of a brief salutation in this letter than some of the others. Paul will save his best words, his best efforts for this very long blessing of God, praise and worship given to God. Verses 3 to 14, this benediction I mentioned a moment ago. And in this lengthy blessing, this benediction, praise of God, Paul expresses, if you notice, two of the letter's main themes that we went over last week. First of all, Jesus Christ, God the Son, in His work, He is reconciling all of this creation back to Himself. And He has, He is, in the process of uniting His redeemed people, His new covenant people, His church, to Himself. This opening is very, very formal. It has a sort of an air of formality, even more so than some of His other letters. It is um, somewhat, let me use this word, official for the time period. Official for a Greco-Roman letter. And it's very official in its language and in its flavor and in its feel. Even for a letter from Paul to the churches. Because that's exactly what this is. He's letting us know by the vocabulary he uses. By using his full title and by using the full title and name of Jesus the Christ, that this is an official document. This is sacred scripture. I think the man knows full well he's under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the document that he is writing is initially to the Ephesians, but it's an official document of the church and for the church anywhere and everywhere and for posterity, for Christians around the world in any age until the king returns. That's why it may perhaps have a more of an official, if you will, feel than perhaps some of his other letters. Paul greets the Ephesian Christians by way of his official title, his formal office, as he was commissioned as an apostolos or apostolane by the risen Christ himself. He's stating his official position of leadership in the church and his official gospel mission in this world as the great apostle or sent one in behalf of the Christ to the Gentile world outside of the Jewish world. Paulos apostolos. Christo Iesu diathelamitos theu is the greeting in the original Greek. Or Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by or through the will of God. What is he saying by that? First of all, apostolos. Apostolos is something of an official title again. 
Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Notice he it will not only use his official title in the verses we're looking at today, he will use the full name and full title of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who is God the Son. Apostolos means a sent one, one who is sent, an ambassador, an emissary. This ambassador and emissary belongs to Christ, sent by Christ, a personal representative of Christ, the King of Kings, the human and divine Christ, as we will learn shortly. This is Paul's official apostolic office, and his authority is stated here. This makes the letter this official document in behalf of Messiah Jesus, who is Lord, who sent Paul on his mission. Therefore, this letter is not only from Paul. Paul is telling you that ultimately this letter is from his master, who he represents, Christ himself. This is sacred scripture. These are the words of the divine Christ. These are the words of the Lord. Paul, has, as an apostolos, has authority in the church, but he ultimately, in the end, serves only his master, the Christ, and Christ's message here given. When he writes, by or through the will of God, he is telling you, I'm serving my master in his message. These are not my words. These are the words of the Lord. This is not my message necessarily. This is the message of my master who sent me and who I represent by the will of God, not Paul's will. Paul highlights his divine appointment, divine commission. He serves, he writes, because God called him. This is not for Paul. It is not about Paul. It is about God, God's will, his sovereign purpose and mission. This is Christ's message and truth. Not my own, Paul is saying. Also, Paul is saying that as an apostolos diathilamatos deu, an apostle by the will of God, he's fulfilling his mission. He's fulfilling his mission. He's carrying out his marching orders. He is fulfilling a foundational role in establishing and nurturing Christ's kingdom in this world as inaugurated by Jesus, establishing Christ's church in this world. Therefore, this letter is official and of the utmost importance for believers in the first century A.D. and for you and I who claim to believe in Jesus the Christ in the 21st century A.D. Who are the addressees, the recipients, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus? That's a mouthful, and that's quite meaningful as well. So this letter, this document, is primarily first and foremost for Christian believers. Those who, according to the Apostle John from his letters, if you recall, those who are born of God, who belong to the Christ and the new life that he won and the new life that he gives and brings. This document is first, initially, for the Christian believers in Ephesus, and obviously, as it is sacred scripture, it is for all of us in time for all the church everywhere in any age. Let's focus on to the saints. To the saints who are at Ephesus. In the original language, the word which we traditionally translate into English as saints is hagioi, hagiois, which is the plural or comes from the Koine Greek word hagios. Hagios means holy. Kadosh, I believe if memory serves me correct, in the original Hebrew. Hagioi means this, Hagioi, or Hagioiis, holy ones, or those who are holy, means two things. It stems from the holiness of God. God is holy means two things. He is absolutely morally pristine, morally perfect, and He is separate. He is other than His creation. He is above and beyond His creation. 
Now, as we are holy people, a people being made holy by the holiness of God, extended to us and given to us, means two things for us. Hagios or means holy ones or consecrated ones or consecrated people. You and I are not inherently or intrinsically holy as God is. We are being made holy by the salvation that God the Son won for us. We become holy because His holiness is placed upon us and in us by way of the new birth and the Holy Spirit. But yes, we are other and we are separate as well. We are separated out of an evil world for a divine plan and purpose. We are consecrated ones, a consecrated people. That's what Paul means by saints. Hagios, consecrated, or holy ones. Christian believers are a consecrated people, consecrated by God, separated for God, consecrated for a relationship, for service, for a divine plan and purpose. And Paul's going to fill us in all about this divine plan and purpose, the big picture which this letter gives. Holy, again, also means we are being made holy by God, by God the Father's decree, by God the Son's work, by God the Holy Spirit's presence. He writes to these saints, these consecrated holy ones, and to you and I by extension, who, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. I believe he's saying two things there. What does he mean by that? I think two things. To the saints in Ephesus initially, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, first of all, this means those who are faithful members of God's covenant people. Those who are faithful persons, faithful to His new covenant, established or inaugurated by Christ. According to Paul, Christian believers are saints, members of the true church, new covenant people. Believers are saints, saints are believers. As Jesus would say, those who are born of God. As Brother John would say, those who are born of God, recipients of the new life. So what is Paul saying in his greetings? Christ in His new covenant makes people holy and consecrates them, sets them apart for the big picture, the divine purpose, the divine plan. And they are to be faithful in Christ Jesus, meaning personally faithful to Jesus Himself. Personally faithful to Jesus Himself. All the saints in and about Ephesus, all Jew and Gentile believers, one consecrated people, being made holy, faithful to Jesus, God the Son Himself. Also, I believe he means this. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, I believe this can and does mean those who have put their faith in Jesus. I believe that's what he's saying as well, particularly if you examine the original Greek. Those who put their faith in Jesus. I'm writing to those who have personally put their faith in Jesus and thereby they're being made holy. And they're being set aside for the divine plan, the divine purpose. Those who have put their faith upon or in Jesus Himself, personal faith, personal confidence, personal trust in Christ, His person, His work. Verse 2, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. This is quite meaningful. These aren't just nice, warm and fuzzy words. Hi, this is Paul. I wish you well. This is far more profound than that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His full name and title. Quite meaningful. First of all, as we unpack it, the first phrase. Grace to you and peace. Kades humen kairene. In the original Greek. A common, popular opening blessing for the Apostle Paul. 
following the form again of a very well educated, very official Greco-Roman letter for the time period. However, let me say to you that something's happening here. He begins in the basic form and style of a typical Greco-Roman letter, even one a little more on the formal and official side, but it begins to change. This letter in the hands of an apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit of God becomes somewhat transformed. It becomes a letter or a document that is, you could say, uniquely or distinctly Christian. This is actually becoming something of a prayer, something of a blessing for the recipient of the letter, for the recipients of the letter. This is how Paul prays for these people. This is what he prays for these people. May God's grace and God's peace be upon you, be with you, and all that that means. Far deeper and more profound than a typical hello. Grace is charis. This is a very important New Testament word. C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, which we translate as grace. It means God's mercy and God's favor, which humanity does not deserve and cannot earn. And yet He lavishes it his mercy and His grace upon sinful humanity to save and redeem His chosen elect people and draw them out of a wicked dark world for His plan and His purpose, the world to come. He's giving you the big picture and all the details here. God's mercy, God's favor be upon you and be with you and all that that means. Grace, folks, it's at the heart and core of everything that you and I believe, if we really are Christians, and it's at the heart and core of the gospel message. It's at the heart and core of the New Testament. It's at the heart and core of the entire divine library. The grace, the mercy, the favor of God. We hang our souls on it, our lives on it, and all of our hopes upon it. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. All important to us. That is, if you really believe it. And you really have received it. Have you? Have you? Thank you. And how important is it to you? It's everything. 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 He also wishes upon you peace. Erene in the Greek. E-I-R-E-N-E. -E, another very, very important New Testament word. By the way, I should say in the same breath, this corresponds, this word dovetails, corresponds almost perfectly with the ancient Hebrew word which we translate as peace, which is shalom. Arene or shalom. They both mean roughly the same thing. Now what does peace mean according to the biblical definition? Arene in the New Testament, shalom in the Old Testament. By the way, final word on grace. Do you know how important grace is to Paul? The word grace appears 95 times in Paul's letters. 95 times does the word grace appear in the letters of Paul. Now as for peace, peace is also absolutely foundational to a believer's life. It's absolutely foundational to new covenant life in Christ, a principal blessing of life in Christ. Paul is saying because you first receive the grace of God, then you can have peace. That's where peace comes from. Real peace, real arene, real shalom. We receive by, if we receive God's grace, forgive me, 
If we receive because we receive God's grace, we have peace. We have shalom. That's the only way you're going to have peace. And what biblical peace, the true definition of peace, really means. It begins with a right relationship with God. A right and restored relationship with the Creator, Redeemer, God. That's where grace is found. That's where peace is found. And a right relationship with God is the one and the only true source of peace. And what this peace means is wholeness. Because you have a right, restored relationship with the Creator, Redeemer, God, you have peace, which is wellness, which is wholeness, which is well-being in all of our being, for all of life. And thereby you can begin to have peace with those in the world around you, with the world around you, and the world to come. That's the grace and peace that Paul preaches. That's what it really means. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the doctrine of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit of God is not explicitly mentioned, but He is implied. When you have one member of the Trinity, you have them all. One God in nature, in essence, in being, and three in His personhood, which sacred scripture teaches. Here we have explicitly or plainly mentioned in the same breath, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son. And we're not going to barrel right over this mentioning of God the Father and God the Son, particularly God the Son's name and full title. Because when he says, from God our Father, that is the Creator God the Father. And he mentions in the same breath the Lord Jesus Christ. He is implying that Jesus and the Father are one. They are distinct in their personhood, and yet they are one. Doctrine of Trinity. And also when he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, by Jesus' full name and title, he is implying that Jesus is fully human, and he is divine by that title. When he says Jesus, or Iesus, that is Jesus of Nazareth's human name, that is his humanity. But when he attaches this title... Lord and Christ, onto Jesus' human name. He is saying this Jesus of Nazareth is also divine. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, prophesied from shortly after the dawn of creation. And this Christ, who is Jesus, is also Kyrios, or Adonai in Old Testament Hebrew. He is Lord. He is God. He is divine. There is a doctrine of Trinity in Jesus' full humanity and deity in that statement. Very, very important to recognize this. Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or as I may say, by the will and decree of the Father and by the person and work of the Son. God the Father and God the Son are the true and only source of grace and peace, according to Paul. They are the gracious givers of ultimate grace, favor, and peace, tranquility, and well-being of all of, in all of life. You want tranquility and well-being in all of life? He is the source. Father, Son, and allow me to add Holy Spirit. God and God only. God's grace and peace are all important themes in this letter and in the New Testament, folks. As a matter of fact, let me give you two other interesting little statistics about this letter. Grace, I told you in Paul's letters, is 95 times. In this letter, in Ephesians in particular, Paul will use the word grace 12 times and the word peace 8 times in this letter. Allow me to quote theologian S.M. Bow from his commentary. He makes a great observation, which we should never forget. 
that God the Father is our Father because of the work of the Son should be seen as the most extraordinary privilege imaginable for a human being. And we take that expression for granted all the time, if not every day. Is God Almighty, the supreme being, the source of all, the creator of the universe, the meaning and purpose of the universe, He who is absolute and ultimate reality, He wishes to be your Father. Is He your Father? By the new birth? I think S.M. Bow hit the nail on the head. That God the Father is our Father should be seen as the most extraordinary privilege imaginable for a human being. The sovereign God of the universe intimately and tenderly wishes to be identified with us, a father to his adopted children. Children who were once, according to the apostles, children of wrath, deserving of his judgment, but now receiving his mercy and his favor. This is all brought about through the mediation of the second person of the Trinity mentioned in this greeting, this benediction. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from Jesus the Christ. God the Son, end quote. Verse 3. Now, here we begin the benediction. This is the formal benediction. And it's verses 3 through 14. And in the original language, it is one long sentence in the original Greek. Paul is the inspired king of run-on sentences, as we would say in English. So in the original language, verses 3 to 14, as we're going to unpack these next several weeks, in the original language, it is one mammoth long sentence. But it is written in a manner, even in the original language, that you have sort of stanzas by which you can pause for meditation and reflection upon what Paul is teaching you, what he is proclaiming here. So we begin this long blessing, and because the way that it's written, many theologians throughout the years, well, the centuries even, have often believed that this may be an inspired hymn. This either was a song or it became a song. We're not certain, but perhaps so. Or it was a formal liturgical piece or a creed that may have been recited in the early church, inspired by, by way of Paul. Verses 3 to 14 it contains. No, we won't get there this week or probably even next week. We're going to unpack this carefully. This is pretty long for a blessing, for a letter. Again, in the Greek, it's one long run-on sentence. 202 words. It's very elegant. It's very beautiful. It's very poetic in the original language, even in the English in most translations. It's quite beautiful in the truth it teaches, and it's quite beautiful in its expression of truth. It expresses great truth and emotion. This is to invoke emotion here. This is to also it's to appeal to your head and to your heart. There's an emotional response here as well, one of thanks and gratitude. It's written to deeply move all who hear this, all who read this. Move you to profound praise, to appreciation for God's work through Christ in our behalf, in believers' behalf. Now again, maybe an inspired hymn or liturgy for the early apostolic church by way of Paul. Who knows? There's the great debate. But this passage does incorporate, sort of encapsulates, Many of the letters, uh, this letter's major themes and major key themes. Now let me, as we enter into the benediction, give you the overall theme. The overall theme of verses 3 to 14, or something of a summary of this benediction as we enter into it. Let me read you theologian Clinton Arnold's summary of it. He gives a wonderful summary of what Paul teaches here. 
quote, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has carefully crafted a heartfelt expression of praise to God for his extraordinary plan of salvation, which Paul sees as a manifestation of the glory of God and, yes, of the grace of God. God imparts abundant blessings through His Spirit to all who are connected to Jesus Christ the Son in a dynamic personal relationship. Before He created the world, Paul, uh, according to Paul, before He created the world, God lovingly chose a people for Himself. And He devised a way of freeing them from their enslavement to sin. One day, allow me to add, according to divine plan, one day, God will bring all of His creation and His people under the reign of Jesus the Christ, the Son. End quote. Beginning of the benediction. Quite grand. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eulogetos hotheos kaipater. In the original language. Blessed be the God, or blessed be God, the Father, or and the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You folks who have your ESV study Bible, I'll give you a quote from it to encourage you to use those text notes in your study Bible. The ESV study Bible on this text, on this verse, writes, This blessing that opens Paul's prayer is very similar to those that began first century Jewish prayers that were commonly recited throughout the day. And quote, that is true. It's very Jewish in its initial flavor and feel. According to Orthodox pious Jews in the first century, of course, this is Paul's background. This is his life to life in Christ. Three times a day or more in local synagogues or in the temple precincts, a priest or a leader of the synagogue or a rabbi would lead in several benedictions or prayers or worship songs or prayers to God in the course of the day. And they all began, blessed be God, in some way or the other. This is exactly how Paul begins this blessing or benediction to God. Bedecha, blessed in the Hebrew, or eulogetos is the word that Paul uses in this letter in the Greek. Does that sound familiar? Let me pronounce it this way. Eulogo, eulogetos. It is the Greek word by which we come by the English word eulogy, or to eulogize. Eulogy, eulogetos, means simply to publicly praise a person. And here in this context, public praise of God, public praise to God for who He is and what He has done. Now let's look at this a little bit closer. This is important. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is saying here is very, very important. Again, he is claiming the doctrine of Trinity. We have God the Father, the Creator God. And in the same breath he mentions God the Son in the same breath by His official name and title, implying His humanity and His deity. Very important. God is the Father of believers in a different way than He is the Father of the Son. The Father and the Son are one. They have the most intimate relationship of any Father and Son relationship. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit and one in nature and essence of being. So He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in a totally different way than He is our Father. He is our Father, our spiritual Father, our Creator, and our Redeemer Father. We become His adopted children, His human creatures, who become His adopted spiritual children by way of the Christ. That's how we, God is our Father, our Father and Christ's Father. 
God is the father of believers, his adopted children. And Paul is saying he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that the God of the universe, the ancient God of Israel, the God of the old covenant people, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the scriptures, who is the God and Father of the New Testament people, the New Covenant people, Christian believers. He is the Father. He is this intimate, most intimate Father-Son relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, who is not only a Jewish man. He is, as the ancient theologians would say, the God-man, the Son of David, who is also the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the promised anointed one, the Savior, who has come to bring redemption to Jew and Gentile alike. Paul is saying that Jesus, the Son, the Christ who is Lord, is the principal figure in God the Father's plan for history. He is at the center. He is at the focus. He is the hero of history. He is the real mover and shaker of history. And He is where all of this is headed for in the end. He is at the center of God the Father's plan for history. The Son who is one for the Father. Are you getting this? This is deep theological water here, folks. From the very beginning. From Paul's very first hello. Some of the deepest realities that the New Testament will confront us with. Now also, when Paul says that God the Father is the Father of Jesus, I should make mention of this. Because we are being made to defend the full deity of Jesus, as well as His full humanity. When Paul says that God the Father is the Father of Jesus, this does not in any way deny or question Jesus' divinity. It is also a statement of His true humanity. He is the God-man, perfectly human and divine. The deep mystery of the unique person of Christ. Two natures, one person. This is a proclamation of Jesus' true humanity and His true deity. Paul is saying is that through the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, God is also our God and Father. He can become our God and Father, the God and Father of believers, because of the person and work of God the Son. Now notice, now focus on His name and His title. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the Christ who is Lord. The Lord who is Jesus the Christ. Jesus is called Lord here. This is very, very important. Please get this. In the original Greek, it is kurios. Most of the time that the word kurios, K-U-R-I-O-U-S, kurios. Most of the time, if not all of the time, that this word appears in the New Testament, it is in reference to Jesus, and it is a divine title. Kurios in many contexts means absolute master, absolute sovereign one. Or if you will say, as Paul quotes in his other letters, writes in his other letters, King of kings, Lord of lords. The high sovereign, absolute ruler and master. This title is given to Jesus. And this is a title in the Old Testament that was given to God and God alone. The word kurios in New Testament Greek corresponds or dovetails with the ancient Hebrew word Adonai, a title which was given to God and God alone. Adonai means absolute sovereign one, absolute ruler, absolute master, king of all kings and lord of all lords. Do you see? The same title given to God in the Old Testament, Paul is giving it in New Testament Greek to Jesus saying that Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, the ancient Jewish Messiah, He is God. 
in His incarnation. He is Lord. He is Kyrios. He is Adonai. This is stating Paul, uh, Jesus' deity. Jesus, who is Lord, absolute sovereign, the Son who is God, one with the Father. Again, doctrine of Jesus' divinity, doctrine of the Trinity here. The reason why I'm hammering this into you so meticulously is this is one of the great battles of our time in proclaiming truth and giving people in spiritual darkness the truth. They will question you, where do you get this divinity stuff of this Jewish teacher from the first century A.D. being divine? Here it is. This is why I'm giving it to you in great detail so you can get out there and give it to others who need it and defend it. This is a central feature of this verse, the beginning of this blessing. It is a praise celebration of the Lordship of Christ, the divine Jesus, the one whom the Father has ordained that all creation will be placed under His reign and His rule. As Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Kyrios, Adonai, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We can move through this very quickly, although I don't want to give it short shrift of the truth it gives you. This is a stair-step truth. See what he's saying here? Let me describe it for you this way. This is often called a stair-step truth. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Three steps. He has blessed us with these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Three magnificent truths, stair-stepped one on top of the other. So first of all, face value, the reason Paul gives us for blessing God is based on the fact that God has blessed us. God has blessed us, all Christian believers. We bless Him because He first blessed us in Christ, by way of Christ. Now, this phrase, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What's that all about? What does he mean by that? Well, yes, at face value, he means this blessing is spiritual as opposed to physical. Or material. Yet I believe the spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about most certainly affect the physical. Will most certainly affect the physical. But first of all, the spiritual. The spiritual realm is true reality, where ultimate reality lies. And the physical always rides the coattails, if I may say, of the spiritual. The word that Paul uses there for spiritual is very important. Pneumatikos, from pneuma. That wonderful New Testament word, I love it so much. P-N-E-U-M-A, the word by which we come by pneumatic or pneumonia. The reason is in pneuma, and depending on which context it's used, can mean breath or wind or spirit. Now this word pneumatikos that Paul uses, almost every single solitary time you see this word in the New Testament, this is what pneumatikos means. It means, this is important, pneumatikos means of or by way of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul means by spiritual here. That's what Paul means by a spiritual blessing. It is a blessing which is of or by way of the Holy Spirit of God. This blessing is associated with the new covenant gift of God's Holy Spirit given to Christian believers. 
These blessings of God, which are gifted to believers, again, are given or conveyed by God's Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. Remember the doctrine of Trinity. Let me put it together for you this way. God the Father decrees these blessings. God the Son performs the work to give you these blessings. And the Holy Spirit of God applies these blessings. That's what Paul is saying. Here the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer assures, brings, guarantees all heavenly blessings from the Father. That's what Paul is saying. Now, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So let's pick that apart. What does he mean by that? Heavenly places in Christ. Well, it's location, isn't it? It's a matter of location. Paul gives us the location, the location source of these blessings. And yes, to an appreciable degree, he's probably stressing somewhat the non-physical nature of the blessings, initially anyway. These blessings are in heavenly places. Entois eporanois in the original Greek. Focus on the word eporanois. It comes from the Greek word oranos. Oranos is the word for heaven. Oranos means the atmosphere where the clouds glide by. I also think appreciably in some contexts, Oranos means what you see in the night sky, that is deep space. But Oranos oftentimes in the Old Testament means heaven as in heaven. <laughs> the heaven, the eternal world. The new heaven and the new earth. The personal localized presence and dwelling place of the infinite God. That heaven. That heavenly place. You could also translate this phrase perhaps even better as in the most high heaven. Remember the hymn sang by the angels when Christ was born? Glory to God in the highest of all heavens. Eporanois. The most high heaven. Or the most high heavenlies. That means the realm of the ultimate spiritual. The realm of the ultimate spiritual. The spiritual sphere or dimension, the unseen world of ultimate spiritual realities, the realm of God, the realm of the world to come, the infinite God's localized dwelling place. That's what he's saying. That place is the source and location from where these blessings come to us. Given by way of God the Holy Spirit, by way of the work of the Son of God. That's what Paul's saying. This is some of the deepest truth that a human being can try to get their arms around, folks. And all of this in his greeting. <laughs> and the opening of his benediction. It's magnificent. It should blow our minds. Now. <laughs> God dwells above the high heavenly places, and this is where all these true spiritual blessings can be found. In Christ. So we conclude with this. This little phrase, in Christ, it's the capstone to the whole thing. For you and I, in Christ, God the Son, decreed by the Father, applied by the Spirit, because of Christ, in Christ, by way of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is God the Son, in Christ. We close with this. This is where we'll close for the day. And this is perhaps the most important part of the passage, this little phrase, in Christ. It's also one of the most important phrases for you to understand, to understand the entire letter of Ephesians as a whole. 
Now, some form of this phrase, in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, in the Beloved One, in the Christ, some form of this phrase appears in verses 3 to 14 11 times. 11 times, just in verses 3 to 14. This is the key for understanding this letter. And the key for understanding this letter, for you, Christian believer, as an individual, this properly identifies your new identity in Christ. You have a new identity in Jesus, or by way of Jesus. You have a new life in Christ. You have a new reality and a new life and a new identity in Christ or by way of Christ. As a matter of fact, you really belong to another world, another reality, another sphere in Christ. Bonded and united to Him by way of the salvation that He won for you and the new life that He won for you. That's what Paul is saying. That's one of the most important takeaways for today. Last word of the day I'll give to Clinton Arnold again from his wonderful commentary. He writes, Paul is proclaiming a new self-understanding for Christian believers. A whole new self-understanding based on a new life. A new reality is to permeate every aspect of the believer's life and truly transform individual Christian believers. The believer's new life is now lived in the realm of and under the influence and leadership of the Christ, who is Lord." End quote. He's absolutely right. That's one of the main messages of the letter. Let me read that to you again. The believer's new life is now lived in the realm of and under the influence and leadership of the Christ, who is Lord. Folks, this is how you are to live your life. This is how you and I are to live our life all day, every day, all the way, come what may. By the power of the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, because of the person and work of Christ the Son, who is Lord. The meaning and purpose of creation, the meaning and purpose of this world. No matter what this world does or may look like, He, in the end, is our final reality. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the magnificent truth that You kindly, graciously, and mercifully give us by way of our blessed brother Paul across the centuries. This is the greatest message, the truest message, and the deepest message that a human being will ever be confronted with. Forgive your failed servant in his attempts to teach this deep truth to folks. The deepest realities a human beings will ever be confronted with. By the gracious power of your Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of what Paul is giving to us here and live our life in the light of this truth, your truth, you who are truth and ultimate reality. And may Jesus Christ the Son be glorified in the lives of His saints, of His people, set apart and consecrated for your plan and your purpose for history and beyond. 
In the name of Jesus the Christ, who is Lord, our Savior, we pray. Amen.